Hi everyone, um, am I on? I'm on? Good, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry if you haven't picked up that already. Sorry, you've got more of me now this morning, so uh, yeah, poor, poor you. Never mind. Never mind. I just got told off by my, my, my wife for sitting on the table during that, that interview rather than uh, on the chair. But she wasn't there, so she wasn't there to you know, supervise where I should sit, that sort of thing. Anyway, anyway, I know you will find this really hard to, to believe. Um, you're going to be shocked. But, you know, this summer, Anna and I would have been married for 20 years. Right, yeah, yeah. No, you're too young, you say. You're too... No, 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 no one say I'm too young. Okay. Well, anyway, when I was young and, and cool, much, much like I am now, I was, you know, super cool, uh, I was driving along in my Nissan Micra that should appear on the screen. Yeah, much like that. It wasn't that exact car with my new wife and a little brother in the back. Now, I was driving along focusing on being super cool, and all of a sudden, he cries out, you've killed Jimmy! And I think, oh my goodness, I start slowing down the car, thinking I didn't see anybody, I didn't feel a bump under the wheels, what's happened? I'm just about to get out and check under the car, when he says, oh no, he's alive again. So, hey? It turns out that Jimmy was an imaginary cricket, like the one on the screen now, that kept dying and coming back to his life again. And... Uh, Actually, Hannah's little brother thought that he too, if he was to jump out his bedroom window, would also come back to his life again. It would be fine, like Jesus rose again from the dead. Well, we had to explain to Hannah's younger brother that actually Christ's resurrection was unique. And uh, it, people don't just come back to their life again. And today, it's my privilege to share with you about the hope of the gospel in which we stand, secured by the resurrection of Jesus. And would you believe it, in the providence of God, Anna's younger brother is here this morning to hear a fuller explanation of why little boys don't jump out of bedroom windows and uh, why Christ's event and the hope of the world rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 34, and then next week, Anna's going to finish the rest of the chapter. It says this. It should appear on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. That's, that's died. They, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in, its own, in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That is, that God may be all in all. If you're confused yet, you're going to be even more confused now. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? I have no idea. Uh, if the dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So someone said to me recently, he said, uh, you know, I've never heard a series on Corinthians before. And now I know why. There's so many difficult bits in it. So at least, at least you know we don't shrink from preaching the, the full counsel of God's word to you here. Revelation we've done, Joshua we've done, and then 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians we're currently doing with you. So the hope of the gospel in which we stand, the resurrection. Do you know, it's probably helpful for you 
to understand that since the time of Plato in the Greek-Roman world, the main thinking about the body and about life after death, as William Barclay explains in his book, was this. The body is a tomb. Immortality lay precisely in getting rid of the body. The, 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 the body was the prison house of the soul. The resurrection, you see, seemed like nonsense to them. It was what the uneducated people might hope in. It was, it was just childishness. It was absurd that people would believe that. That's why if you look in Acts chapter 17 and verse 18 and onwards, when Paul is preaching to the Greek audience in Athens, they say, what does this babbler say? He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, the word babbler there is, a, is an insult to Paul. What they're saying, it, it comes from the, the, the chicken that would peck the food on the floor. They're saying, what does this low-life, stupid man uh, trying to say to us? So they listen to him a bit further, and actually they're surprised because Paul's a very intelligent guy. So they listen intently as he goes on to say, the times of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by the resurrection of the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You see, that was laughable to them. How could, God, how could the dead be raised? So cultural thinking and pressure on the Corinthian church had caused some to do away with this embarrassing babbling about the resurrection of the dead. They hadn't actually gone as far as to say that Christ didn't rise from the dead. But as Paul points out, this logic of theirs, this false thinking, that's where it leads. In verse 12 to 19, he labors that point. It undermines the whole gospel. It makes their faith void, makes preachers liars, and it limits the power of God as if he couldn't raise the dead as well. You see, the Bible is clear. Death entered this world because of Adam and Eve's sin, verse 21 in our passage. Suffering, disease, natural disasters, all these things come about because of God's curse on the earth in response to Adam and Eve's sin against him. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. This passage, verse 22, in Adam all die. You see, we're all from Adam and Eve. In fact, modern DNA would, would verify the fact that all humans are from one ancestral couple. Maybe not such babbling after all. In Adam, we all come under the consequences of sin. We are no better than him. We, he was perfect. We would have fallen just like him and Eve did. And we very much show ourselves to be his children by our infatuation with sin. We're born in sin. We're born naturally rebellious to God and as God made clear, the wages of this, the result of this, is death. Separation from him, from his goodness, from his love, permanently separated from 
him and under his wrath and under his judgment for all eternity. But you see, God, in his love and grace, has decided to go beyond what is fair and what we deserve and through Christ be able to declare, for the wages of sin is death, yes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. In Adam, all die. Yes, it's true. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. You see, this is the hope of the gospel in which we stand. This is why the eternal Son of God left heaven in all his glory, came and lived amongst us as a man and died for our sins, verse 3. He was buried and raised again bodily, verse 4, all in accordance with the Scripture. Christ came and he lived that perfect life and died so that he could be our substitute and all those who put their faith in him. We all, all sinned, all deserve death, all deserve that separation and punishment of God and uh, that Adam got. And yet Christ takes our wages on himself on the cross and all who put their faith in him receive his wages of a righteous, holy life before God through faith. You see, that's why God can say in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, that all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus because he's taken our punishment and we receive his blessing and his good works. Jesus rose again from the dead as a sign that God had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, but also because death and had no hold on him because he had never sinned. So the resurrection is a sign, a sure and certain sign to all those who put their faith in him that they too will rise again when Christ returns. It all hinges on the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the hope in which we stand. And that's the only way People can get right with God. It's not by our own works. Do you know, there will always be elements of any society, of any culture, that, uh, that dislike bits of the gospel, that find it unpopular, and they'll make you feel stupid for it. They'll make you feel childish or backward or even bigoted for believing those things. But it's always been the same throughout history. We're not unique here and now. So don't give in an inch. Young people particularly hear this. Don't give in an inch to what cultural pressure is putting your way. Bad company ruins good morals, verse 33. And anyway, it's not like their ideas are any better, even though they're you know, promoted as fact and that sort of thing. I don't know if you realize this. Um, it's a big stir in the scientific world at the moment. In the last few months, the recent discovery of how dark matter, we will say, what on earth is dark matter? How dark matter? I don't know. But it's, it's spread around the universe in a way that means that Einstein's theory of relativity that underpins much of modern physics has all but been disproved. Professor Carl Frank of Durham University said to the BBC, I've spent my life working on Einstein's theory, and my heart tells me I don't want to see it collapse. 
But my brain tells me the measurements were correct, and we have to look at the possibility of new physics. Then my stomach cringes because we have no solid ground to explore because we have no theory of physics to guide us anymore. How sad. How sad. Let me give him some solid ground. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 2,000 years later, the most read words in history. Every year, Jesus' words are the most read words. He says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. Jesus is the rock solid ground that should guide you through your life, that you can build your life upon. He is the only person who can guide you through this life to life eternal. Why would you settle for anything less anyway? Another theory or what another person says. Christ's words hold true. They speak life. They controlled the wind and the waves. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 1 verse 13, they sustain the universe anyway. He's holding all things together. He said he would die and rise again. And that's exactly what he did. And 500 people at one time could give testimony to the fact that they had seen him, including all of the apostles too. They had uh, seen him. Most of the people Paul could write are still alive today. You can go and check it out with them. Don't just take my word that I've seen him. There's, there's all these other people. You see, if you bear in mind that Corinthians was written roughly 20 years after the resurrection, which is why I brought up that Anna and I had been married 20 years. Do you know there's probably over 150 people still alive, some in this room, that can give testimony to, I was at Sayonara's wedding. I was there. I saw the bad first dance that they did where basically Sai just groped Anna's bottom most of the time because she was my wife. And I thought, no one can tell me off. She's my wife. Well, apart from Anna, she could have done, but she didn't. But... Uh, um, so they could say, Christ is alive. Go and check it out with these people. It wasn't a, th a theory. It was a fact. You can build your life on the resurrection of Jesus, and you can base your future hope on the fact that you will rise again with him. Don't let contemporary culture steeped in sin determine what you believe. Build your life on God's word. It's worth living for. It's worth being insulted for. It's even worth dying for. Jesus said this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. It's not what we often think, but he says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christchurch, we're not called to conform to culture, but to be a prophetic voice that transforms culture around us. Not by your own power. Don't think, oh, I've got to really try. It's by the grace of God that is at work with you. Verse 10, as Paul makes clear. You know, John Calvin, the, the famous... Oh, spilling Owen's wine here. Um, 
actually looks like proper wine he's got in there. Oh, my goodness. Cool. I'll have to have communion with him next time. Uh, John Calvin says, commenting on verse 10. Sorry, I got distracted by wine. Uh, um, it makes it clear that the grace of God at work in our lives means that our lives are under the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit. The death and resurrection of Jesus is at the center of the gospel. And our future bodily resurrection that we will receive will happen when Christ returns and makes everything perfect. He renews all things, as verse 23 makes clear. It's the culmination, if you like, of our salvation, which is why Paul starts this passage by saying that we are being saved in the present tense. It's a continuous thing that's happening to us at the moment. It's guaranteed because of Christ, but as Romans 8 verse 30 makes clear, it won't be fully completed until we receive our resurrection bodies and are glorified, uh, receive our glorified bodies, as Anna will have the joy of looking at next week with you. Currently, God's Spirit is at work in you and me, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 makes clear. Until Christ returns, and then we will receive our incorruptible resurrection bodies to be enjoyed on a renewed and perfected earth. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, before I finish, I need to deal, obviously, with some of the more challenging verses. So I'm just going to go through them quickly uh, with you. And See, how we handle these difficult verses that we come across in Scripture is we must handle them carefully and humbly, recognizing that they are Scripture, so it's God's Word to us, but also recognizing that they're written often to very specific situations and sometimes, like Corinthians, written in response to direct questions that have been asked and uh, we don't know what was those questions that were asked. It's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. So you have to bear that in mind. That's why you have to be humble and uh, not too dogmatic on the, the views that come up. And that's why the theologians debate for hours on some of these uh, verses. Anyway, so verse 1 and verse 34, where it says, Unless you believed in vain, and some have no knowledge of God. Are people losing their salvation? Is that what it is teaching there. Do you know, it's helpful to realize that in this passage, it doesn't come across in the English, but all the yous or the yours that are, that are in there are in the second person plural. So he's never addressing an individual person. He's never saying Andrew or, or John or something like that. He's addressing the whole gathered church. And the church isn't static. It's not just the same group of people. It's constantly growing. So people would have been added in as well. He's warning true believers to avoid this error and those who have been recently added to come under the truth of God. Verse 7, Paul's not saying that, all, that to be an apostle you have to have seen the risen Lord Jesus bodily. But he is saying at that time the majority of apostles had. It's not clear whether Barnabas actually ever saw Jesus uh, 
rose again, but uh, he, he's using hyperbole, which is often used in the Bible, to, to, as all to mean most of the apostles. And there's some scriptures there where you can see hyperbole is, is used before. 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 make it clear that the apostolic gift is needed for the founding and maturing of the church until the end of the age. Verse 27 and 28, the eternal subjection of Jesus to God the Father. We, we, we think of subjection as a dirty word because we always see the people in top as misusing their power, but God is perfect and never does. And it does not mean that Jesus is less than God the Father. No, he is equal. In fact, one of the most famous verses of the Bible, Philippians 2, he did not consider equality. He had equality, but he did not consider equality something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. It demonstrates submission demonstrates equality and headship that is there within the God house itself for all time. Was in eternity past, will be, is now, will be in eternity future. Something that should be mirrored in marriage, as it's already been seen in 1 Corinthians 11, and as Dunk looked at last week, those challenging verses, 14 verse 35. In the church, we're all called to be equal as well, and yet, Actually, God also calls elders to give a lead and direct. There's a headship there. Ultimately, the ones, I suppose, that would end up weighing prophetic words that are a bit controversial and that sort of thing, which is what some theologians believe that he's addressing in 14 verse 34 as well, about being silent there. It fits the context. It's in terms of weighing prophetic words. Finally, in our chapter, verse 29. Baptism on behalf of the dead. Paul acknowledges that it happened without endorsing it. Actually, if you look at the language, it's clear to say, you, you do this, not we uh, do it. He recognizes that it happens, but he's dealing with a much greater error of their view on the resurrection of the dead, which is his, which, so he uses it to emphasize their broken thinking and false teaching. Elsewhere in his writings, he makes it clear that we don't get baptized on behalf of somebody else. The Bible doesn't endorse it, so we don't do it. We shouldn't do it, but except that at one point in history, the Corinthians did do it, and actually some other people did it at other points in history as well, but for the Corinthians were obviously doing it for some other reason than claiming it had uh, save the people that they were getting baptized on their behalf for. Otherwise, Paul would have addressed it, as he did in Galatians 1 and 2, the whole issue of circumcision, when they were claiming that added to your salvation. He was quick to address that. So there was obviously no, um, there, there was no implication that they were saying these people are saved through our baptisms. But what Paul is crystal clear on, however, is that we should stand firm on the truth of the gospel. That's of first importance that Jesus Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to his disciples and is coming back to judge the living 
and the dead and usher in the eternal age to come. And he's calling all people at this time to repent and receive him in preparation for that. On this truth, we stand. It's this truth that we hold fast to. It's this truth that we are called to declare to the world around us through his power of the Holy Spirit and his grace at work in our lives. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come back up now. But if you're here in this room or if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, and as I've been speaking, you realize, oh, I need to get right with God, then just pray this prayer in your heart along with me. Now as the band just begin to prepare, just pray this prayer of surrender to Jesus. It doesn't mean that life suddenly can get easier for you. Actually, sometimes it may get harder, but you will know God with you. And he will lead you through this life to life eternal. So just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved me enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for me. Please forgive me of all that I've done that offends you. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. Amen. If you want to stand, and as we, as we sing these closing songs, just allow the Spirit of God to come and fill you afresh, to come and touch you. You have the message of eternal life. This is the only hope that the world has. This is the first importance that the world needs to hear. And he calls you and me. We have the privilege of sharing that truth that transforms lives, that transforms lives for eternity with those around us. Don't let the world make you feel small. It will try to. But Jesus rejoices over you every time you step out in faith. Lord Jesus, fill us, I pray. Help us, Lord, to build our life on you. Help us, Lord God, to promote your truth to the world around. Lord God, there's no other hope than in you, Lord Jesus Christ. You're our only hope, God. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to promote that to the world around us. In Jesus' name.